The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11, uh, 8, 11 to 9-7. For the Lord sp- spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching upon my, among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. They will not speak according to this word. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, 
On them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. We'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known and glorified would be our first, our only concern. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do you lay a hold of hope? And what happens internally and externally when hope erodes? A number of years ago, I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was a Jewish psychotherapist who was imprisoned at Auschwitz during World War II, and he was trained to observe and reflect upon and understand human behavior. And he saw in the camps firsthand the erosion of hope that marred humanity both internally and externally. You see, in the midst of the hopelessness and brutalness of camp life, he said some became brutal and cruel. They betrayed their fellow prisoners for scraps of food to death. Others, he said, gave up hope entirely. They just didn't get up one day. Stopped eating. Still others, he said, grabbed a hold of a temporal hope. They said, if I could just survive the war, then on the other side, I could return to the wealth, the family, the health, the position that I once had. The camps were liberated, and none of those things were returned. And Frankel observed that their lives were marked with ongoing despair. There was another group, a small yet significant group, And though in the midst of the brutality and hopelessness of camp life remained kind, possessed inner freedom, inner strength. And it all had to do with the possession of not a temporal hope, but a hope in eternal things. Where do you lay a hold of hope? For many centuries, Christians have marked each Sunday an Advent by lighting a candle on an Advent wreath, each candle representing for us something that Jesus brings us in his coming, his Advent. And the first candle that we light, as Tiffany affirms, is the candle of hope that Jesus brings us, a unique hope that we can find nowhere else. Our first reading from Isaiah 8 and 9 that Susie read for us speaks of this hope. And it brings us into a particular set of grievous circumstances in which hope has eroded. It was a time of great, incredible geopolitical upheaval. The physical well-being of the populace was threatened. An economic cliff was looming. Assyria, the world power at the time, was brutally and deliberately expanding its kingdom Those they didn't conquer, they exacted crushing tribute, pay or else. The people of Israel at the time were a divided nation. There was Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel made an alliance with Syria 
against Assyria and put pressure on Judah to join them. King Ahaz of Judah refused. And so Israel and Syria attacked, seeking to replace Ahaz with someone more sympathetic to their cause. Ahaz, in response, made an alliance with Assyria. And if war were not disastrous enough with death and forced migration, a famine had descended upon the land. Incredible food insecurity, hastening the movement of wealth more and more to just a few, widening the gap between rich and poor, an economic cliff was looming. Hope has eroded. And what happens internally and externally when hope erodes? Well, in the chapters leading up to our text, Isaiah speaks of this erosion of hope and speaks of a nation gripped in fear, a fear that nurtures the belief in conspiracy theories, theories that somehow make the chaos seem understandable, somehow controllable. With this erosion of hope, Isaiah speaks of some losing themselves in drunken entertainment. With this erosion of hope, Isaiah speaks of moral and spiritual decay. With 2020 has been quite a year. Geopolitical tensions across the globe, the darkness of systemic racial injustice further exposed, a deeply polarized election with our neighbors to the south, a chaotic transfer of power that will have ripple effects far-reaching. Our physical well-being being threatened by a deadly virus, ever-present climate change. Public health guidelines that are speeding up the transfer of wealth from the worker, the small business, to massive global companies. An economic cliff looming. But this resulting erosion of hope, there is fear, palpable fear. Fear that drives panic buying, a fear that nurtures in even the most reasonable of us, an attraction to conspiracy theories, theories that somehow make the chaos seem understandable, somehow controllable. Plandemic, the Great Reset, QAnon. In the erosion of hope, there's escapism, alcohol sales rising. What will we binge watch this week? There is moral and spiritual decay. If our future looks bleak, well, what does it matter how I live? I'll live for me. I'll live for self. Where do we lay a hold of hope? And in the midst of the hopelessness, Isaiah feels a strong hand upon him, hears a voice in his ear, a hand he invites us to feel, a voice he invites us to hear. Verse 11, don't respond the way this people responds. Don't fear what they fear. Don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Instead, regard God as holy, meaning set him apart, set him in his rightful place. Let him be your fear, meaning make him ultimate in reverent worship, and he will be your sanctuary, your hiding place, your hope. So often, biblical hope is articulated as some kind of ethereal, otherworldly, spiritual hope. Don't allow current events to consume you, present circumstance to crush you, your material present to define you. 
What is really important is your spiritual future. The hope of heaven, the hope of eternity, free from all present concerns, fears, anxieties. But that's not the kind of hope God proclaims through Isaiah to a people mired in grievous circumstance. He proclaims a material, all-encompassing hope, proclaiming to a people facing food insecurity the joy of a coming harvest, proclaiming to a people under the thumb of oppression the breaking and the lifting of the yoke, proclaiming to a people embroiled in war, not just the cessation of this war, but every war, proclaiming to a people that is suffering injustice an eternal reign of justice. This is not an ethereal, otherworldly, spiritual hope. It is a material, all-encompassing, earthly hope. But not only is it a material, all-encompassing, earthly hope, it is also a firm hope. We're so used to thinking and speaking of hope as simply meaning wishful thinking. I hope the Leafs will win the cup next year. I hope everything will get back to normal by Christmas. Sadly, wishful thinking. But biblically, hope was to possess absolute certainty. Isaiah is so confident that God will bring about this future that he speaks of it in the past tense. You have multiplied the nation. You have broken the rod of the oppressor. You have lifted the yoke from their shoulders. And how can he be so confident in the promises of God? Because they're rooted, grounded in God's character and power. Verse 7, the zeal of God is moving history toward the final victory of a messianic kingdom of peace, justice, love, and grace. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now that doesn't mean we're going to see the realization of this in our lifetime. For God's timing is on a far larger scale than our own. The grand sweep of God's purposes for Israel in this text took some 700 years to bring to completion before the promised child, the Messiah, The son of David, Jesus, was born. And now we wait with them for the final consummation of God's messianic kingdom under Jesus' glorious healing reign. Awaiting, we give ourselves over to particularly at Advent. As we look back and give thanks for the promises of God already fulfilled in Jesus, as we look forward to the promises of God fulfilled in his second coming, his second advent. The full realization of these promises may not come to fruition in our lifetime, but our laying hold of this hope can change how we experience our present circumstances and how we live in those present circumstances. For as Isaiah puts it, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. As we wait, there's certainly anguish. There are our present circumstances, which we rightly grieve, rightly lament, rightly rage against, for it is not right. But this hope 
will not allow us to be pulled under. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And reflecting on the impact of this hope on our lived experience, Pastor Tim Keller often utilizes a helpful illustration. He says, imagine you've got two people hired for the same job, a year-long contract making widgets in a windowless, airless room for 10 hours a day, constantly being yelled at, do it quicker, do it better. The only difference is that one is told, at the end of the year, you'll make $30,000. The other is told, at the end of the year, you're going to make $3 million. Will they experience their job differently? Of course they will. One will want to quit after the first morning. The other will whistle the year away. Their circumstances are exactly the same, and yet their experience of them completely different. Why? It all has to do with the difference in the content of their hope. The possession of this hope not only changes how we experience the present, it also changes how we live in the present. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright explores how we're to live in light of Jesus' future coming, his advent to make all things new. And he speaks of the place of worship. He says, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship back to the object itself and then outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it, increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, practices, past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. You become what you worship. You reflect what you worship back to the object itself and then outward to the world around. So Wright invites us to worship King Jesus, and we'll come to reflect the character of the king. Worship the one who humbled himself for the sake of others, and we'll become those who humble ourselves for the sake of others. Worship the one who loved those at the margins, and we'll begin to love those at the margins. Worship the one who forgave those who persecuted him, and we will be marked with forgiveness. Worship the one who stood against injustice, and we will become ones who stand against injustice. We become what we worship. The possession of this hope will change how we experience our present and how we live in the present. So how are we to lay a hold of this hope? How do we receive it? Well, in Matthew's gospel, which Emily read for us, Jesus' early movements are tied to this promise of Isaiah. Jesus moves to Capernaum, to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we're told from that time on, from the time that he moves, he begins to preach. And the content of his message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 
is telling us that his movement is the embodiment of his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were always where invasion came from. It had changed hands so many times that it was a melting pot of different peoples and faiths. And in the cultural convictions of the day, it was believed that nothing good, nothing right, nothing sophisticated, nothing pure, nothing faithful would ever come out of that region. And so to accept a person, a message, a salvation from that area, anathema, unthinkable, deeply humbling, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we're humbled further still. This message of hope comes not only, as Isaiah says, to a people who live in darkness, who dwell in the darkness. It comes to a people who walk in darkness, who contribute to the darkness, who participate in the darkness. You see, we like to think of the problems in our world and in our lives as as out there. They're with those people and those situations and those problems and those leaders. And if we could just get rid of those people and those problems and those situations and those leaders, we'd be okay. No, Isaiah says. You don't just live in darkness. You don't just dwell in darkness. You walk in it. You contribute to it. You participate in it. The problem just isn't out there with those people and those problems and those leaders. The problem is in here. It's in you. It's in me. It's in our nature curved in on itself. My needs before your needs. My rights before your rights. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we're humbled further still. Verse 4. Isaiah refers to the defeat of Midian a story as listeners would know well. Midian had plundered Israel for seven years. Every time the harvest was ready, they would swarm like locusts, leaving no sustenance. The people trembled, hid in caves, cowered in fear. And they cried out to God for rescue, and God raised up a leader, Gideon, a leader with no battle experience, with no courage, who was consumed with self-doubt. Gideon raises an army, 22,000 men-at-arms against the horde of Midian, 135,000 strong. But God said, yeah, it's too big. You're going to think you saved yourselves. So Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send home everyone who's scared, and 12,000 leave, 10,000 remain. God said, ah, it's still too big. You're going to think you saved yourselves. So I want you to go down to the river, invite all the men to drink, and those who bring the water up to their mouths, they can stay, the rest go home. And 300 remain. And 300 go up against the horde of Midian, 135,000 strong, with pots and torches. And they throw the Midian army into confusion. They turn on one another, and Israel is saved. By bringing us back to that story, Isaiah is crushing any belief that we can fix, we can save ourselves. He stands firmly against the myth of progress that humanity through education, wisdom, technology are slowly and surely progressing towards some utopian future. No, 
The people walking in darkness didn't generate a light, manufacture a light, kindle a light, elect a light. A light shone upon them. They saw a light. To lay a hold of this hope is deeply humbling. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why Isaiah can say this hope will either be your sanctuary or it'll be your stumbling block. Because to lay a hold of this hope is to repent. It's to say, I'm part of the problem. The darkness just isn't out there. It's also in here. The solution to all the things that terrorize us will not be human strength, wisdom, power, ingenuity. It'll be a child, an atoning death, a bodily resurrection, a return again to make everything new. In the midst of the hopelessness, Isaiah feels a strong hand upon him. Hears a voice in his ear. A hand he invites us to feel, a voice he invites us to hear. Don't respond the way this people responds. Don't fear what they fear. Don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Instead, regard God as holy. Set him apart. Put him in his rightful place. Him alone shall you fear, meaning exalt him to its proper place in reverent worship. And he will be your sanctuary, your hiding place, your hope. Where do you lay a hold of hope? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So let us have hope. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services. 